Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsession. I'm Morgan, and I'm here with my co-host, Gabia. Hello. So this week, we're discussing John le Carre's new novel, A Legacy of Spies, which functions as a sequel of sorts to both his early novel, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, and his famous Carla trilogy, which features George Smiley. In this novel, le Carre returns to the circus, and his old cast of characters, particularly Peter Gwillem, who finds himself recalled from France and his retirement to testify about an old operation that has come under new scrutiny. So this book has gotten quite a lot of press because it's the first Smiley novel that uh, Le Carre has written since the late 70s. The last book in the Carla trilogy came out in 1979, and he also wrote it in like a fever in the, over the course of less than a year, I think. It was really quick, and he hasn't published a novel in a while. So this was very exciting for a lot of people, including me, particularly if you're a fan of his most famous books, which are the Smiley novels, which include Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which is definitely his most famous book. Yeah, so if you've seen the movie of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the narrator and protagonist of this book is the Benedict Cumberbatch character, but he was like heavily rewritten for the movie. Yes, the character in this novel bears no resemblance whatsoever to that character, except that he served the same plot function in the book. Yeah, he's he's George Smiley's kind of young protege slash trustworthy right-hand man. Yeah, and he probably had the biggest role in Tinker Tailor of any of his appearances, but he does kind of pop up in those other books. And he has a distinct personality, but he's the kind of character who is basically characterized as Smiley's lapdog. Like, he runs around and does things for him. And he, he's kind of less tormented than the others. Yes, definitely. And in the books, he's this sort of uh, caddish womanizer who doesn't have a lot of depth. Um, he's not a hugely interesting character, in my opinion. And indeed, when they adapted the feature film, they completely changed his personality because clearly they thought, we don't need another guy like this. This just isn't that interesting. And they made him a closeted gay man in the film, which I think was a good move. I think it's more interesting. He's not someone... He has quite a bit of screen time, but he doesn't have a lot of like deeply personal stuff to talk about. It's a spy movie, right? But anyway, in this novel, uh, it picks up somewhere in the 90s, we think. Maybe the early 2000s, we were kind of trying to work this out. He doesn't specify exactly when the book takes place. Yeah, it's kind of written like a memoir. Yes. So for the, for most of the book, I kind of assumed it was very nearly kind of the present and it was narrated by a man who is about 85. So I was like, holy shit, he's doing pretty well for 85. <laughs> and then towards the end, it's like, actually it's being written by someone in the present day, but he's retrospectively thinking back to something that happened like maybe a decade ago or more. Yeah, and I had exactly the same experience. It was quite discombobulated by exactly the same things, but... The, so Peter Grillam is basically John le Carre's exact contemporary. Like they're, they have, they're born in the same year. And John le Carre, obviously his personal backstory is that he literally was a spy, which is why he is the greatest spy novelist of all time. Yep. He knows what's up. Yeah. Uh, so I think you're meant to think that this character, by the time this book is happening or the events of this book are happening, is around his mid-60s. He has hearing aids. He's retired. He's moved to Brittany which is where he apparently grew up, which is not something that ever comes up in the other books. He's living on a farm with conveniently a, a beautiful younger woman with a child who decides to sleep with him because who wouldn't want to sleep with an old man? <laughs> I think we have to assume that Peter Grillam is like phenomenally good looking, but no one ever mentions that he's good looking. Well, why would he mention that if he's writing the book? You have He has to be modest. <laughs> I mean, if some people find Benedict Cumberbatch attractive, so I guess if you want to imagine that, that's fine. But he, he does sleep with many, many women in the novels, and this is referred to quite a few times in this book, because... But not, not in a fun James Bond way. No. In a really sordid and depressing Cold War way. Correct. So basically, he gets called back to London by his former employers to go through all the details of this operation in Berlin in the 60s. And the reason this has come up is that the government is being sued by sort of descendants of some people who were involved who think that this case was handled improperly. 
So we will not be getting into um, sort of end of the book spoilers. We will discuss those a little bit at the end of the podcast. If you haven't read this book, which is likely, you can listen and we'll warn you. We will be talking about The Spy Who Came In From The Cold and Tinker Tailor in general terms because they are the prequels to this book. But we'll try to be sensitive to the fact that not everyone will have... We will not reveal who the mole is, which is basically the only spoiler you really need to know for Tinker Tailor. We would never tell you the mole. Exactly. (laughs) Um, So the operation that he gets called back to talk about in this book is basically the entire plot of The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. And so basically what happens in that book is that there's all this kind of double-crossing stuff going on, as in most spy novels, and it ends with some people dying who are not supposed to die. And the descendants of those people find out about, I mean, obviously that they know that their parents are dead, but they find out more details about this and decide to basically sue the British government. Um, And so they drag good old Peter back from France and essentially start interrogating him. Basically because he is the person who's available. Right. Because throughout all of these books, kind of the mastermind is George Smiley, even though he's not technically in charge. He's not control, the guy who's the boss at the spy circus. But Gwilym's sort of convenient because he was present for the whole thing and he was instrumental and he's still available and not like dead or farmed out somewhere. It is a very plausible kind of scenario for the way that these government investigations are set you know it's going so back far into the past that it's very hard to make kind of moral judgments about the decisions they were making 30 years ago in a completely different mindset during the cold war and everything they were doing was completely awful but they're only bothering to tackle this specific mission because people are like wanting money from the British government and they need a scapegoat yeah so it's like yeah that is the only time when they investigate why a bunch of people died <laughs> right. and this leads to a sort of long sequence that is one of the best things Le Carre does which is basically interrogation scenes that are set up not exactly as interrogation scenes so the lawyers at the circus which is basically MI5 are pretending to be very polite to Peter, even though they obviously have it out for him and he knows they have it out for him and they know that he knows that they have it out for him. But the sort of head guy is this unbelievable, just like over the top, super English, English man. There's His name is Bunny. He's very Oxbridge. My God. <laughs> I should find some dialogue actually. So Lakari's really tremendous at italicizing words for emphasis, yes. where you can just tell the obnoxious voices and intonation these Absolutely have. beautiful. <laughs> and of course, I mean, now it's a lot more of a meritocracy, but throughout the whole 20th century, the British Secret Service was very much recruited just straight from British public schoolboys, which is the whole setting of all of these people who are in the earlier Smiley novels. And this is the sort of more Tony Blair era equivalent and they're very smarmy and there was a really interesting kind of generational culture clash between Peter Gwillem and these younger intensely annoying obnoxious interrogators. Yeah I mean one of the sort of interesting things about reading about uh, the British intelligence service in the 20th century is that culture of like Oxbridge Eaton type people who all wound up working there and of course, you're not supposed to ever tell anyone that's what you do. And there are all of these stories about, like, you could go to the sort of like fancy private clubs in London, and everyone would be like, "Oh yeah, my son works, whatever." Like, cause they just all knew this, and this was how, you know, the service was really compromised in like the '50s. Obviously, Kim Philby was the most famous secret agent like ever. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the reason why John Le Carre ended up ending his yeah. life here. I mean, obviously he'd, he published his first few novels when he was still working as an acri- as an active spy, basically, and kind of a semi-diplomat slash spy. And then he was one of the people whose names was uncovered in the Kim Philby scandal. Right. But Philby was an all-blue blood and everybody, like, they all just all knew each other. And so it never occurred to anyone that he could possibly be a double agent. 
But then also, like, he knew all this information about all these people, not only because he was high-ranking, but also because they just had... There was no culture of actual secrecy, which is preposterous, because that's the entire point of this organization, right? And you do see it kind of filtering down a little bit. Um, Okay. So he comes in... Just the way that he can sort of describe a character... And you completely get what this person is about so fast. He says, We troop across an empty corridor and enter a white, hygienic office with sealed windows. A fresh-faced, bespectacled English public schoolboy of indefinable age, in shirt and braces, bounces out from behind a table and seizes my hand. Peter, gosh, you look positively jaunty. And half your age. You traveled well? Coffee? Tea? Honestly not. Really, really good of you to come. A huge help. You've met Laura? Of course you have. So sorry to have kept you waiting in there. A call from on high. All well now. Have a pew. And then this just goes on. I mean, it's like, you know who that guy is, right? Like, that is, that. that's like three sentences. Like, done. Like I could that. just hear the accent oh, yeah. all the way through. I as mean, well. I did not attempt it, but reading it, no. like you can in your head, it's like, yep, I, I know what that guy sounds like. His observational skills yeah. are so impressive. Then, after sort of that chunk of the book, what it moves into, which I found really interesting, um, is basically this series of like documents from the files from this operation. Right, which he's sent to go look through. And I can't think of any Lacari book that I've read, and I haven't read all of them, but I think this was the seventh one, so it's enough that it's a pretty good sample, where he's done this before. And it's an appropriate uh, method to be using for this book, which is basically a retrospective look back on so much of his career, where you know this guy is looking back at all of these documents that he himself personally wrote about this operation or that other people wrote or just all of these things that were kept and then he's using them to decipher what happened and then also then you get his memories interspersed with and obviously every layer of this has a different layer of lies because he's on the hook for stuff and he ends up being kind of incorporated into the investigation as their source and asked to read through all these documents. So he's constantly, just his automatic reaction to absolutely everything is to lie. So he's lying to the younger generation of spies who are trying to like make him part of this investigation. Then the reports he's reading are also full of lies. Yes. <laughs> and so you've got like all these just different layers. And the only thing you can, you can, I mean, you can't even trust his memory necessarily because like the way that he interacts with certain characters is clearly completely warped by his own opinions you know there's a there's a woman where it's just like you've literally met her twice you can't you're not it's like oh she's the love of my life it's like she is not like what (laughs) um so it is very much kind of about the untrustworthiness of the public record and how utterly futile this operation is yeah i mean it was it was kind of an epistolary story and like the only things i've read like that is Captain America fanfic because there's loads and loads of Captain America fanfic that heavily uses historical like fake historical documents and mission reports and that sort of thing and like switches between the 1940s and the present day and like kind of interrogates the way the public views secret military operations and I was like wow this is really really getting me in the Captain America (laughs) fanfic zone (laughs) it's like this fucking literary novel (laughs) well that's beautiful high culture meets low culture it's all good um there's a great novel by uh A.S. Byatt called Possession that like won the Booker Prize it's big very famous um about scholars who uncover like an unknown manuscript I think by a very famous Victorian poet. It's based on um, Robert Browning and Elizabeth Barrett Browning's relationship. And it's not like this book at all, but it has does a similar kind of like archival thing, except the people who are looking at the stuff aren't the person who wrote it. It's all sort of scholastic and historical. And one of the interesting things about this is that it's not someone excavating it. And I've definitely read other books like that before. It's the person who was responsible for putting it all together and of course it becomes apparent that there was this kind of conspiracy afoot regarding this whole thing and if you've read the previous book you know that there was that it all kind of worked out badly and that there was undercover stuff going on do you mean smiley's people 
know on the spy who came in from the cold. Oh, okay. That again, there's all this double crossing stuff and that things are being kept from people. Um, so it benefits them to have created this record that is not in any way reflecting reality. Right. Um, but to have him reading the stuff and then to have the benefit of the, basically the editorial gloss on it as he's remembering it simultaneously thinking like, well, nope, that wasn't right. And that wasn't right. And that wasn't right. And actually I recall this. Although, as you say, his memories are similarly faulty. I found really, really interesting. And I thought was a really effective way to do it. Particularly because it allowed him to bring in this whole cast of characters that he'd written about for all of these books over the years without necessarily having them be present. So the character who is the mole in Tinker Tailor, whom we will not reveal, obviously cannot appear in this book. Like, he can't do that, but he can kind of show up in these documents, right? Um, and that's a really famous character who it's neat to see if you're a fan of these novels. And then Smiley is all over these documents without him actually having to be in the room. And that's easy just from a plotting perspective. Like, it would be really complicated to have all of these people come and it wouldn't make any sense, whereas this does. And it's very fan y That was something I found really interesting reading this book, is that it didn't... It all felt like it made sense that it was there. Like, it, it felt like the book was a like a good book and a good work of art while simultaneously being really satisfying to me as someone who is like a fan of John le Carre, right? Yeah. It definitely doesn't feel self-indulgent and obnoxious because like, I feel like a lot of the time when familiar characters are revisited in this kind of fan service way, it's just like, oh God. Whereas, you know, this is just a really good book and it works within the context of the series. There's one small detail that we're going to discuss at the end that I was a bit like, I don't have anything against this, but this is definitely self-indulgence, <laughs> but in a good way. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we will discuss that later. <laughs> yeah. Well, and also there's one interaction between two characters in the documents that is like this relationship between these two people. I realize that I'm being really vague, but it's the most central relationship in Tinker Tailor. And it's like two lines long in the document. Right. And I of course was like, Ugh! but that's all that he gives you. So as opposed to sort of going on for pages and pages about this stuff it's just enough did i miss this did i miss this it's literally like it's literally just like a tiny little thing or like jim Prido, who uh, is played by mark strong in the film and is my favorite character of all of these people only appears in tinker taylor he doesn't appear in any of the other books and then he comes back in this very briefly and it's not a like massively emotional scene it's pretty brief but it was really satisfying for me as someone who really loves that character. And it felt like he did a good job with things like that throughout where he put... It was so... I, when I was reading that section with Jim Prudeau, it's like, obviously, this is a character who they've all been through hell in the Cold War. But in terms of the trauma, Peter Gwillem actually is basically fine. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like, kind of, he's the part he got out fine. You know, he he's he has like he's not he's not a psychopath. You know, but he just like he isn't really torn up about what they did. He hasn't been through the same level of trauma. Whereas Jim Prudeau was. He comes from like a rougher background in this. They kind of talk about how when he was a boy, he was fighting for the Czechoslovakian resistance. And by boy, I think we have to assume like under fifteen. So he was killing people when he was under fifteen. You know slitting throats I think was the phrase used um, and then he like goes to Britain and is educated at Cambridge but they were like Cambridge educated him but never tamed him and then he has all these like he has this lonely really upsetting life and he's fucked up by the Cold War he gets tortured actually that he gets my favorite quote from the book which I'm going to read out for you because I was just like oh my god Lakari knows how to do a sentence <laughs> so this is his description of the now elderly Jim Prudeau. The tortured are a class apart. You can imagine just where they've been, but never what they've brought back. <laughs> uh, 
Oh, it's terrible. He is the most tragic character in his like corpus. It's yeah. it's horrible. So I appreciated him returning. Morgan's a big fan of misery. I love him. And there are only two characters, the other one being Smiley, which I don't think is like a massive spoiler, who actually physically appear as opposed to just being in the documents. And I think it's pretty significant actually that it's the two of them. The person who got the most fucked by everything and Smiley, who is the most important, obviously, of all of these people. Um, and I think it is interesting that he chose to go with Gwillem, who, as you say, is not someone who suffered some, like, massive trauma, right? He's he's a total foot soldier. And is, I think, described literally in those words at some point in the book. But because he's forced to look back through all of this stuff, then slowly becomes, I think, sort of disturbed by it, as opposed to someone like Prido, who clearly, like, this has ruined his life, and obviously he's thinking about it all the time. Like, Gwilym just, like, left and went to France and was living with his hot young lady and her kid. That this is... He isn't someone who's that deep, necessarily, and I think that that is actually serves the book. Like, I don't find him his, massively his, sympathetic. His point of view, but... kind of his his narration is really great because you can really tell how kind of pragmatic and analytical he is. Yeah. The interrogation scenes, like you said, they are really a strength of Lakari. Like, he did interrogations in real life, not in the sort of torture sense, but in the social engineering sense. And there was... I really appreciated towards the beginning when he's having his first meetings with the younger... Um, MI5 people like Bunny and Laura and I was just like I can literally feel this book making me less ageist because partly because at that point I still thought he was 85 so I was like god yeah he's (laughs) like obviously he's been written by an 85 year old but I'm like wow holy shit he's so like self-aware but um at that point like Peter Gwillem is like he's intentionally playing up his age he's trying to make it seem like his memory is really faulty he's like faffing around his his hearing aids and stuff and it's just like you can see like the levels in which it's working and it's not working on the interrogators but you can't tell how much and it has to unfold over days and days because there's all these techniques at work that they're both aware of but they they're trying them until you have no cards left kind of thing yeah so should we talk about the women? Because you have a lot of issues with the sexism in these books. Yeah. Well, we already mentioned the his lady friend in France. He's, yeah, he's jacked up with this woman in his delightful small French town. And I don't think she has any personality traits. No. But I have to say, I was not immensely troubled by the sexism in these books. <laughs> so well it's because you have you read any of the other like not all the way through okay i've read bits and bobs yeah and i don't think i've read tinker taylor so this is why because he does the same thing in literally literally all of them and it is that there is a crazy lady who needs to be saved oh no and then she can't be saved and she ruins everything somehow. Oh no. Well, there's one of those in this. <laughs> Correct. Correct. A sexy, crazy lady. Yes. So this happens in this book. It happens in Smiley's People. It happens sort of in Tinker Taylor, but it's not like the central thrust of the plot, which is part of why that book works so well, actually, because the central relationships are all between men, which is really depressing to say, but actually that's like... He just needed to not do the women so much, and then it's better. Um, There's this awful book he wrote called The Russia House that isn't as... That one's Sunk Without Trace. I've never heard of that one. Yeah, he wrote it after... So his best book by most, like, by all accounts, and I've read it, and I have not read all the books, but I am sure that this is true because it's staggeringly good, is called A Perfect Spy. And he wrote the Russia, ha- which he wrote after he was done with the Smiley books. And then after that, he wrote the Russia House. And I honestly think he must just have been like, I'm exhausted from writing so many good books. I'm going to write a piece of shit. And he wrote, literally, <laughs> it's so bad. Please never read this book. I only finished it because I don't not finish books. And I was actually kind of mesmerized by how terrible it was. 
And the woman in that isn't fully crazy, but it's a similar kind of like femme fatale thing. Uh, I think he does the same kind of thing in The Honorable Schoolboy, which is the second book in the Carla trilogy, which I also definitely do not recommend. And hilariously, the third book in the Carla trilogy, he basically only talks about Tinker Taylor and not about the second one because I think he figured out that... I think I saw an interview with him where he was just like, the schoolboy isn't that good. Yeah, it's like just 600 pages long. <laughs> it took me a month to read and I was like, I hate this. <laughs> like, this is so horrible. He has a wonderfully realistic attitude both about his books and about the film and TV adaptations. Yeah. Where he just straightforwardly will tell you which ones are bad. It's it's in a perfectly non-bitchy way. He he's I think either his art has given him the world's best release or he has just been in therapy for 40 years. Cuz when you read or see an interview with him, it's incredible cuz he had like an insanely fucked up childhood. His father was a con artist who basically made him lie for him for his entire childhood. So they like invented all these fortunes so he could go to private schools and essentially become a social climber. And then he had tremendous social skills from doing all this stuff. So he ended up becoming a spy and then wrote books about the Cold War for the rest of his life. (laughs) Yeah. So if you read A Perfect Spy, that's like the autobiographical novel. It then totally like deviates in the second half, kind of, because then it's about this character as an adult doing all this crazy shit that Lucario never did. But the first half or so, although it sort of flashes back and forth, is about this character's childhood that I, as far as I'm aware, is very straightforwardly Lucario's childhood. And when I read it, I had sort of known that he'd had this weird upbringing, but not the details. And I was reading it and I was like, oh my god. And I looked on Wikipedia and it it's just... And then was sort of reading about it and he said, yeah, this was just my life. And you read this book and think, wow, this is a fucked up dude. Like, this guy has some serious problems <laughs> because it is... There's just a lot. There's a lot going on in that novel. Not just the descriptions of his childhood, but the way he's talking about the character who is himself as like having no personality. And I was like, Oh, okay. There's just, you, I hope Oh, I think you... he apparently, he changed the protagonist a bit because he was like, I need to make it less like me. So yeah. I think he is at least to a certain extent self-aware. I mean, yes, but it was all very like, Oh dear. Um, I hope he's, you know, talked to some professionals. Uh, but yeah, it's like, it's just, wild um and it's amazing what a great grasp he has of mental health issues with men and then yeah (laughs) with women (laughs) well so there was i don't remember exactly the details but this there he had this bizarre situation with his father and then his mother was went off to i think some facility when he was quite young and this was obviously the 30s or something i mean it was it was a different time um and so he literally is incapable of fully imagining female interiority. I think he does the best in that novel, actually, probably because he's basing the characters on real people, or most of them anyway. And again, the central relationship in that novel is between two men, which he's much better at. But is so many of the plots of his books revolve around this sort of like Victorian crazy lady who then sets the whole thing into motion. I mean, the the women in the flashbacks in this one, I could absolutely understand where she was coming from. But also, I feel like I automatically am very forgiving, not of the writing, but of the characters. Because when you have a story like this or a movie, I immediately just start imagining in my head what she's feeling because she's in this really fucked up situation. But also it's so clearly exactly what you said, (laughs) you know, because they've got this and she's like, she's like, it's the classic thing where it's like when a woman's really troubled and it's like, I think we all know how women express themselves when they're troubled and it's by being very horny and also by being raped. (laughs) So she's got this great combination of being both horny and a traumatized rape victim in the middle of the Cold War. And like at one point she goes in disguise and it involves like lingerie and I'm just like, I just don't feel like the British intelligence service would necessarily feel the need to give her lingerie, but okay. Yeah, that one moment. <laughs> Maybe they would. I don't know. I just thought, uh-huh. But I do, I like all of the frumpy women because there was always this kind of Greek chorus of frumpy women 
Yeah. In the background, because clearly there were in the offices in real life. And I engage more with them, even though they're barely characters and they always seem very real to me. Well, the probably the most successful female character of his in the books that I've read is this woman in Smiley's People, which is the last like full Smiley novel, who is like Greek or something. She's an immigrant, and I I don't remember whether it's London or it's like some. I believe she's Eastern European, and it's in some Western European country. Um, yeah, I think I started that one. And yeah. She's middle-aged and lost her daughter. Yes, and someone is after her. And she's just this random middle-aged lady and has to deal with these people coming after her. And it's totally straightforward because the specific situation is so straightforward. Like, she has a problem and she has to deal with the problem, right? And that's fine because it is a concrete thing that he can write about. Whereas anything more abstract is like, nope, <laughs> that's too much. I cannot deal with that problem. Um, which is really too bad because that's sort of important. And I think you kind of just have to accept that he can't do it if you want to enjoy his books, which for some people is going to be too much of a turnoff. Um, but it's interesting. I I really, really like his books while simultaneously recognizing this is a huge problem and also recognizing that sometimes he writes huge, like total garbage, which is kind of fascinating to me. I can't think of another author I had this relationship with. Like I read a ton of his books this year, like while I was in graduate school. So I didn't have a ton of free time. And it's amazing to me that one person can produce something like A Perfect Spy, which Honestly, I mean, I think it's on lists of, like, best English novels written in the 20th century. Like, it's it's an astonishing book beyond being a spy novel. It's just incredible. Or Tinker Tailor, which I think is also an just astonishing novel. And then something like The Russia House or The Honorable Schoolboy, which are just incompetent. I mean, like, how, how does the same brain produce maybe sometimes like, he just wants some money uh, oh with the russia house i think that's definitely what happened but with the honorable school i think he was trying and it just really 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 didn't work but i was thinking about this the other day and i sort of concluded that i have this weird like halfway between literary appreciation and like fanish appreciation for his stuff which usually in my brain are sort of sorted into two different categories not that I can't like aesthetically appreciate things that I'm fanish about but usually it, it does sort of manifest in two separate spheres whereas this I really love his books but also like have strong emotions about them in a way that I don't usually about just books that I like um like I was saying like Jim Prito is definitely my favorite character of all of them and my favorite books I don't usually sit around being like my favorite character and that one it's like that guy which I think does allow me at least to be like, yeah, there's some problems here. But like, oh, oh well, I guess it's I mean, fine. you read John Le Carre fanfic. Oh, yeah. My finest work. It's really sad. The best thing I've ever written, I genuinely think this is true, was my Yuletide fic from two years ago, which is like 36,000 <laughs> words or something. And it's all about the secretaries at the circus. Because he can't do women. And so I thought, well, I'll fix this situation. Oh my god. Listeners, you need to check this yeah. out. I mean, there's also some gay stuff. So fear not. Like, I try to cover all the bases, you know. Yeah. Which was, again, that's kind of the, like, fanish impulse, like, cathartic thing to fix something and something you really love that doesn't work. Which I wouldn't have for just, like, a good book that I read normally. Can you imagine someone writing fanfic for Wolf Hall? <laughs> I'm sure it's happened. I'm someone sure. will have done, and I just applaud that endeavor. Oh yeah, I mean, I absolutely do 100. That impossible endeavor. <laughs> but that's exactly that, right. That's exactly the point. Is I fucking love Wolf Hall, but it would never even begin to enter my mind to do such a thing, right? And I guess that's also like these are genre books. They're just. Which is, I mean, that's obviously not a bad thing. They're just like the best of the best of the best of genre books. So that kind of also... I didn't realize until I read a review of Legacy of Spies that John Le Carre is responsible for the word mole entering the public lexicon. Oh, really? Yeah. Also, like, honey trap? People literally just didn't 
refer to the word mole and tell his books. Basically most like most spy lingo that isn't in James Bond. But like I was just like the word mole wasn't oh my god. Isn't that crazy (laughs) to think about? It's so funny. It gets used in like every spy movie that has ever been made post, you know, nineteen seventy whatever before I think was Tinker Taylor. It must be really strange to be him and know that you have had this big of an impact on everything. It's like when... Yeah, um, I mean, we'll never know, because he's just an incredibly good interviewee. Yes. Really self-contained, very, very insightful and intelligent, both about himself and politics and his books and their reception. And obviously because he's someone who spent, you know, the first section of his career doing interrogations... Of course, one can never know exactly what he's thinking. Nope. He's really the perfect author. <laughs> I mean, he's written an autobiography, which I have not read. But I imagine yeah. that also is fascinating and opaque. Because... Yeah. Well, the only reason he wrote it is because someone wrote like a massive semi-unauthorized biography of him. And both he and they employed a bunch of private investigators to investigate his life. Because he was like, I just genuinely don't know a lot of what happened. Yeah. And apparently he was dissatisfied with the biography and that's why he ended up writing the autobiography a couple of years ago. Yeah. I'm sure that once he's dead, someone will write like a tome about him that will be fascinating and largely inaccurate. <laughs> but there are many things we will never know. Uh, shall we move on to the ending? Yes, yeah, spoilers and Brexit. Yeah. I think actually before we go into the spoilers, just to lead into that, it's not really a theme in the book in a in a kind of surface way, but in the promotion for this book, Lacari has spoken a lot about Brexit and how he's disgusted by it because yeah. he's sensible and has watched the world turn for many years. And it is definitely something that's present because you really do see during this book how European all of the characters are. You know, Peter Gwillem is uh, he's French and English and he lives in France. And Jim Prudeau is Czech, and all of these characters are part of a web of, you know, interlocking spy rings across Europe, where, you know, as with many kind of spy and war stories, one of the ongoing themes is that even though people are enemies, they have more in common with their direct enemies than they do with their peers in their own country because they're living in this secret world. And it's all about kind of trying to improve Europe as a whole and keep diplomatic relations running. And there was definitely no kind of heavy-handed stuff for most of the book, but in the promotional interviews, John the Carey has been very outspoken about, like, not nostalgic, not saying, oh, this was a better time, but just, like, you fucked up <laughs> <laughs> by by turning to kind of nationalism and, you know, anti-European sentiment. He is very much kind of a European liberal pragmatist type. Yes, that seems like a fair description of his outlook so now we're gonna do some spoilers yep if you haven't read it stop go read the book watch some movies etc etc yes basically at the end well there's all this stuff with the kids that we don't need to talk about because it's yeah there's action but like whatever um he finds george smiley which is the part that we were really looking forward to yes well, so it's interesting that there are the two scenes with Prido and then Smiley, right? Because Prido, as people may recall, so in Tinker Taylor, again, spoilers if you haven't read these things, stop listening now. Um, the mole in Tinker Taylor is Bill Hyden, who was played by Colin Firth in the movie, who is like the most blue-blooded, charismatic, you know, whatever guy. Very charming. Yes. And is, was the head of the Russian, you know, bureau, Soviet bureau, whatever in the circus um and he and Prido, i think they both went to oxford together i think it was was the background i think it um, was cambridge but yeah well in my fan fiction if- it was oxford okay <laughs> that was what i remember but it doesn't matter now uh and it's too late to change that but in any case they were lovers back in the day and this is like the whole tragedy of poor old jim is that his that he was betrayed by like the love and of his Jim life. was attached, whereas Bill is very much a kind of flighty charmer. He was also sleeping with George Smiley's wife for cover. Yeah, it's very tragic for Jim, who we might add is also not a very nice man, but right. also tragic. So 
it's it was interesting to me that like first you get the like personal tragedy element is that he does that first um and you see that this guy's life has completely been destroyed by this whole thing and he is a particularly beloved character among fans i think and so in a way that did actually feel to me like the one moment where lacari was giving a little gift to pe- to people being like i will sh- i will you know you can have this and interestingly like he's described as not being very nice but he also is like the character in tinker taylor who gets sent off to be a school teacher after he his cover gets blown and he's like really nice to a small child in that for most of the book like he's a quite a well he like, has more connection to the common man right basically yeah <laughs> And then once that is done, then he goes to see Smiley, which again, of course, has to be the end of the book, because how could the book end any other way? And that's the more larger political conversation, right? So he toggles between the two things that he's been sort of getting at the whole book. And I think we should probably just read the Europe thing, because basically this turns into like an elegy for Europe in the third from last second from last third from last page of the book basically peter is i don't know if he even asked directly but he he's trying to figure out finally after all of this like nightmare what the point of all of this was which to me is probably why this book was written at all like that seems to be what's going on and smiley says For world peace, whatever that is, yes, yes, of course, there will be no war, but in the struggle for peace, not a stone will be left standing, as our Russian friends used to say. He fell quiet, only to rally more vigorously. Or was it all in that the great name of capitalism? God forbid. Christendom? God forbid again. A sip of wine, a smile of puzzlement, directed not at me, but at himself. So was it all for England, then, he resumed? There was a time, of course there was. But who is England? Which England? England all alone, a citizen of nowhere? I'm a European, Peter. If I had a mission, if I was ever aware of one beyond our business with the enemy, it was to Europe. If I was heartless, I was heartless for Europe. If I had an unattainable ideal, it was of leading Europe out of her darkness toward a new age of reason. I have it still. Um, And then that's it. And I thought that was like such an interesting way to basically end the book. Because that's dead now <laughs> like i mean it's very much lakari using him as a mouthpiece and i think you can argue either way like you can argue this is actively out of character for smiley and it's too much just john lakari trying to put his point across or that it's more like george smiley himself in his 80s or 90s now is looking back and that's what he's decided now but if you asked him you know, when he was in his prime in the earlier books, like when he was in his 40s and 50s, that isn't necessarily the answer he'd give because kind of the whole purpose of these things is that even though people were aligned along lines of capitalism and communism, they weren't idealistic. And in fact, the characters who were more idealistic were usually on the communist side, whereas the people who were the British spies were all, they were so ground down by the daily work that they were doing that they weren't necessarily thinking about the loftier goals. And that's just something that's shaken out in his older years when he's looking back and thinking, why did we actually do this? Well, yeah, definitely. Um, And obviously, you know, the whole like capitalism, communism thing was always nonsense. Like that's, you know, people convinced themselves that that was what was going on, but that no one has ever, you know, we don't need to get into that, but I think that most people, you know. But Smiley, I mean, one of the like big things about Smiley's character is that in his other life he was a German literature academic, which Lacari did also. So this gets referenced throughout the books a lot. Is that he's his like obsessive thing is like German poetry, and they're all like, "Oh, George is back at that again, <laughs> right?" And so when he gets kicked out of the service at the beginning of Tinker Tailor, and then he gets sort of dragged back in to investigate them all he's basically gone off to like go back to his german literature and then when he he just wants to sit in a life right and then when peter finally finds him in this book he's like retreated to germany to live in an archive essentially um and peter is like really angry at him and it's 
thinks that he's gonna go like confront him and then when he goes and finds him he's basically just this like old man reading books and he doesn't have it in him right and so I found that I was very sad at the end of this book maybe those that like one two punch of those scenes may be very emotional um and I think part of it is that I have read all these books over the span of several years I can't imagine reading this if you're like an old person who's been reading these since the 60s like it's boggling <laughs> to my mind it must be really something to read this now but also that I don't think that that is an answer that character would give or would have given like if asked during his you know the prime of his career right but it didn't feel out of character for me at all and it felt very sad to me because it felt like it was in reaction to something that was dying and obviously if it's in the 90s then it's not literally in reaction to brexit which obviously for le carré it is so this is all this weird sort of projected stuff from him because you know he's putting himself into smiley and whatever but that partially all of this stuff that they've done was meaningless in and of itself but then also if there ever was any meaning in it that didn't ultimately sort of add up to anything and then it the, it gets undercut almost immediately he says all that and then it says like a silence deeper and deeper longer than any i remembered even from the worst times and he's sort of thinking it says until with a shake of the head as if to rid it of a bad dream he smiled forgive me peter i am pontificating we have a 10 minute walk to the station you will allow me to escort you so it is this sort of brief moment of like solipsistic thinking about this stuff and then it's gone and then they have to return to their sort of mundane lives which is sort of what life is like in general when you have these moments where you get to think your deep thoughts and then it's back to it's back to the grind but yeah i just i thought it was really brilliant into the book especially since you know that that's the last anyone will be seeing of him like he said i'm done with this now <laughs> like i am not writing another one of these books like i'm too old the fact that at 85 he's capable of doing this is mind-boggling to me like i mean he, he's going back to this book he wrote in 1963 and essentially, like, rewriting it. I don't... How? How? It's incredible. I don't... Oh, my God. I mean, my grandmother's 93 and is totally with it and super, like, sharp. And it's not that I think, well, people are decrepit or whatever. But 85 is pretty old. Like, 1963 was a long, long time ago. And, I mean, obviously, he would have had to, you know, reread everything a million times, whatever. But it's just kind of an incredible feat. I think the whole book, even if it isn't quite as good as like the the best things that he did. Ugh. Yeah. And Brexit is bad. It's a bad idea. <laughs> and everyone should feel bad about it. This was it's my feeling bad. at the end. Not great from this end, gotta say. No. Not no. enjoying myself. <laughs> yeah, like all the carry novels, you get to the end and just feel like shit. excellent and also it's like on top of that the whole setting is always just like you can just feel the 70s upholstery and the cigarette (laughs) stains and the like sweat Uh, uh. and the horrible coffee it's all just like it's so grimy yeah and even when they're like fucking glamorous women it's just like oh god (laughs) (laughs) oh my god i really need to read some of his more recent stuff because he sort of started writing about you know more modern conflicts after a while because he got tired of it but Part of the appeal is the the grimy, fluorescent lit seventies depression. So you know, that's what I want from this. I'm reasonably sure a most wanted man is pretty grimy as well. Yes, yes. Twenty first century grime. Oh yeah. Adapted into a movie with Philip Seymour Hoffman, the King of Grime. Oh, may he rest. Uh, yeah. If people haven't. If, if for some ungodly reason you are still listening to this podcast and you haven't seen the most recent Tinker Tailor adaptation, I don't know why. Fuck, that movie's good. Oh my god. 
Oh my god, I love it so much. Certainly one of my top five movies of all time. It's it's on my list. It's pretty high up there. I've seen it so many, many, many times. I basically haven't memorized. Like, I don't need to watch it anymore because I've seen it so much. So I can just play it on a loop in my head. It's just, it's astonishing. And it fixes the worst problems he has, which is really the, the sexism stuff. So it's a good one. Um, thank you all very much for still listening, if any of you are, and for reading along with us. This was a lot of fun to do a book for the first time. We will be doing a book again next month sometime. We haven't settled on an exact date, but we will be reading um, the new book by Philip Pullman that, uh, is it the book, book of Dust is the trilogy name? It's the first volume in the Book of Dust trilogy, and it's called La Belle Sauvage. Yes which I think is the in. Anyway, we'll be giving more details on that. We're very excited to read that because we love his dark materials very much. Uh, But next week, I think we might be discussing Blade Runner. Oh, yes. I'm excited about that. The reviews have been very good. I need to rewatch the old Blade Runner. I'm not bothering. I saw it in 2010 or 2011. And so I feel like just for my own personal edification that I would like to rewatch it because I do not remember really almost anything. It sounds like you can watch the new one without the old one, so this is not a, you know. Actually, actually, Blade Runner 2049 is arriving on the back of a timeline of mini prequels kind of in the same vein as Prometheus. Oh my god. But they're at, they actually seem to be plot relevant because I've you know, been following this for work purposes. There's two live action prequels which are directed by Ridley Scott's son. And they're about characters from the movie. And then there's an anime prequel, which is like 15 minutes long, which is by the creator of Cowboy Bebop. And it's set like three years after Blade Runner. And it's about this really massive power cut, which basically changed the face of politics on planet Earth between the two Blade Runners. And I've been scratching my head a little bit over these because they seem like they must, the timeline seems like it's pretty relevant, but also they can't possibly be expecting most people to have seen or even be aware. So I guess it's just something that will be explained in some expository sequence during the film. (laughs) God only knows. I have no clue. I mean, it's well over two hours long, I think. Yeah, it's quite long. They got room. (laughs) I, who knows? Uh, We'll, we'll find out. I'm looking forward to it. So that will be next week. Uh, Thank you as always, but particularly this week for listening to this entire podcast If you enjoyed it, as always, we would greatly appreciate a rating or review on iTunes. That is how we find new listeners. And otherwise, you can find us on overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, or on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.